On this edition of the Scott Thompson podcast, with Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson, we're talking about the possibility of a fall election. Why talk about it now? Because there are so many things seemingly going on in our country that could have an impact on the decision to do that, and then on the result. We'll talk about it. We're also going to talk about a piece of government legislation that has been introduced to deal with online hate. Trouble is, many people are saying this goes way beyond just simply controlling online hate and is going to be an absolute crackdown on free speech. We'll discuss. And Rick Zamperin comes in to join us to talk about the Montreal Canadiens and the pixie dust ride that they are on right now to the Stanley Cup Finals. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We keep hearing rumblings that a fall election is imminent, is about to be called, will be called. Um, Ridings are now choosing candidates. That's a sign of something. They don't do that for no reason. They don't do that a year or two ahead. There's, There's a reason why these things happen. But this seems like it may suddenly be a very complicated time to go to the polls. If you're a political party, there are unknowns that could cause you great concern. I want to bring in Michael Tobe. He is a Troy Media syndicated columnist. He writes for the Washington Times. He is a speechwriter. He joins us now. Michael, how are you this afternoon? I'm doing well, Scott. How are you? I am doing very well. I, I'm probably, I've probably got less on my mind than um, the leaders of the political parties in this country because um, there is a lot going on right now. There is a lot going on, and I wonder how much of this is going to factor into an election. And let's start with the obvious one. I mean, the main headline for the last number of days and weeks has been the residential school situation, obviously. And I'm looking at this wondering, should any party fear that this becomes an election issue? What's happened in the past? Like, are they going to look at it this like this is history and we can just talk moving forward? Or is that history going to play against any particular party? I don't think it's necessarily going to play against any particular party, because if you look at the history of negotiations between the federal government and um, Native Canadian band leaders, Aboriginal leaders, First Nations leaders, etc., there have been good moments, bad moments, and plenty of indifferent moments. So nobody really comes up way ahead. I mean, obviously, Native Canadian communities have dealt most of their time when they've had various constitutional or political negotiations. They've been directly with liberal governments because federally, the liberal government has obviously run this country much longer than any sort of old progressive conservative or current conservative party of Canada governments in place. Um, But at the same time, you know, especially when you take into consideration the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced several years ago and said that this was going to be the way to build new bridges with the native communities and make them feel more a part of Canada and part of the system, et cetera, et cetera. Many native Canadian leaders have spoken out over the years with their disappointment in terms of the way it's been handled. So they have suffered sort of the same slings and arrows, so to speak, that many other previous liberal and conservative governments have suffered too. You know, my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, we, obviously had our good moments and bad moments with negotiations with Native Canadian leaders and otherwise. And again, no one really stands out. So even provincially, where you would obviously include the NDP, there have been lots of good moments and lots of bad moments. So no one really has an advantage or a disadvantage. I think that just unfortunately the terrible tragedies that we've seen 
in Kamloops, BC, and in uh, medieval um, Saskatchewan, for those purposes, because it's basically we're talking about nearly a thousand bodies that have been, you know, just the remains have been found, they've been, uh, you know, unidentified as of right now. It's a terrible tragedy for the country, but I think that every political party is going to have to deal with it to some fashion when a federal election is called, uh, but nobody has the advantage. But the flip side of this is who who could possibly have any credibility? I mean, every party is going to try to use this, I would think, if an election is called, to try to show, hey, here's what we're going to do. But who has any credibility on this one? <laughs> like who's, who are people going to believe? It, it just sounds like it's hot air and, and politicking. Yeah. No, look, the only reason I laugh is because every party will obviously claim credibility on the issue. The problem is I don't think any of them necessarily have enough footing to stand on or enough of a leg to stand on. Again, each of the political parties, both the Liberal government and the opposition parties, the Tories, the NDP, the Greens, even the Bloc, will all present proposals that they have to deal with Native Canadian leaders and Native Canadian communities aboriginal communities indigenous communities first nations communities you can use all the whole gamut if you wish but they will present strategies in terms of improving relations between ottawa and those bands the difficulty is that while everyone will claim credibility and say that they have the perfect solution to heal these terrible wounds that have existed for not only decades but centuries um it's going to be very very difficult because if you look at the track records of all of them Again, not to be a broken record, it's good moments, bad moments, and plenty of indifferent moments. And since the latter category is the one where I think the largest chunk exists, no matter if it's a federal government, a provincial government, or even a municipal government in certain instances, for that reason, no one really has the high ground. No one necessarily has the low ground either. We basically just have to, during an election campaign, talk about solutions and talk about possible ways to rebuild a relationship that sometimes is in tatters and sometimes is not. It's a difficult situation. It's a hard one that may include discussions of apologies, reparations, and various other things. But again, no one necessarily has more clarity than the other. You mentioned apologies, and we know that this country has given out lots of apologies for lots of things in recent years. Let me ask you this from a political, from a strategic perspective. You're the Conservative Party. You're mm-hmm. wanting to cut away at any chance the Liberals have for credibility on this one. Mm-hmm. Do you bring up the fact that residential schools were still operating under Pierre Trudeau and the white paper was authored by Pierre Trudeau and cr- tie the Trudeau name into this? Or is that a low blow? Um, I think it would be perceived as a low blow today. I think that a few years ago, Scott, you probably could have used that to some extent. And again, you know, politics is not all nice, as we know. There are strategies that are brought out, which we've seen over the years, such as the, well, the, the Barbarians Hotline. There have been lots of chain gangs in Ontario. There have been lots of things that have been brought out that obviously resonate with certain elements of the public and displease others. I don't think, certainly the Conservatives could bring it up, and I wouldn't be shocked if they mention it. I wouldn't even be shocked if the NDP mentioned it. But I don't think they're going to focus that heavily on it. I think the easier thing for Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives, just to use them as an example, to focus on is truth and reconciliation. I think you can look at that and talk about the grand experiment that Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, suggested he was going to do six years ago and sort of go point by point that not only has it failed, many Canadian leaders have come out and expressed huge disappointment that it has not been successful. 
I think that's the better political strategy. At one point we were talking about or hearing about the idea that an election might be in the summer. And of course, COVID persisted and that came across to be a very bad idea. People would have been really ticked off if all of a sudden they were expected to go to the polls and do all this stuff while COVID was still in full flight. Well, now that we've got these other, especially this issue that is now so boiling in the, on the front burner, is there any advantage to the government to even delay it a little bit longer and hope this cools off a little bit? Well, you know, you would think so in theory. Um, again, I, I don't think that an early election call benefits them and even one in the fall you still have to deal with the fact that, you know, we have an enormous deficit, enormous amount of debt that's going to take us, you know, years, decades or several lifetimes to really pay down to the point where you almost wonder if it will. But regardless of that, I mean, we're talking about an enormous expenditure of money, some of it which was obviously justified to keep individuals and companies and, and private businesses alive as long as possible and to allow them to survive. But there's also been an enormous waste, which is not surprising and not unexpected when you consider this liberal government. So you have that, you have the residential schools issue, and you have other things related to COVID-19 and the fact that the vaccination plan, the way it was rolled out, was not rolled out extremely well. And whether some of the listeners like to admit this or not, that starts at the very top. And that's actually Justin Trudeau and the federal liberals, because it's Ottawa who started the ball rolling by first getting into bed with a little-known Chinese vaccine maker, CanSino Biologics, and they tried to make their own sort of made-in-Canada-type vaccine, which ultimately in the end failed, or at least that experiment did. CanSino has gone on to create something that's being used in other parts of the world, but not actually in this country, so that was a waste of time. And then, and then Justin Trudeau and his ministers had to go running to sign contracts with various companies such as Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, which we've obviously been getting if people have been getting their vaccine shots. So although some publications, including McLean's, came up with an interesting timetable, or at least I thought it was kind of fascinating, where they said that the, you know, that the liberal government had been planning this all along and moving in this direction, Whereas I have to admit to you, Scott, I never saw anything like this, and most of us didn't. And I have strong doubts that's the way it happened, especially because we know that, you know, near the end they had to hurry or else we wouldn't have run low on Pfizer for a period of time and wouldn't have run low on AstraZeneca. You know, whereas other countries, yes, they've had their struggles and difficulties because the vaccine companies have to keep up with an enormous amount of demand. But the schedules have been at least a little bit more streamlined than they've been in this country. Although certainly Canada is now on the right, you know, the right path anyway. So okay, but you, all, those, all things those things together, I don't know if it works. All those things, though, you just said, uh, fair points, absolutely. We've got the deficit and the debt, and we've got the vaccine situation, and we've got the residential schools. And if you want to go back, SNC-Lavalin and the WE scandal sure. and the blackface, and I mean, yep. you go back and back and back, and yet every poll suggests the Liberals are comfortably or reasonably comfortably in front still and have seemed to dodge most of this. Why? Well, look, there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, obviously, the history of this country tends to be pretty progressive or left-leaning in its philosophy. So it's not surprising that, A, the liberal government has ruled this country for most of its time when you have that sort of mentality that exists. And secondly, it's not shocking that the liberals would still be out in front. Plus, you have other intangibles. One, the other progressive parties, especially the NDP and 
well, I mean, you can see what's happening with the Greens right now, even though they're a minor party. Enemy Paul is basically under a coup d'etat within her own ranks. The progressive party of the progressive wing of this country has not been competitive at all with the liberals, which allows them to gain in support and gain in potentially not necessarily getting a majority government, because no poll that I've seen thus far seems to show it, but they're not far off from basically just equaling what they currently have right now. So they don't really have any major opposition that, that way. And then on the other side, we obviously know that Aaron O'Toole has had his struggles. I've written about them for publications like the National Post and in the United States. Others have discussed it, too, and I'm sure you have as well. Um, but because of that, still a lot of people don't know who Aaron O'Toole is. They don't understand the political platform. They see problems that kind of pop out and pop in as time goes along, such as the Derek Sloan controversy, the issue that they may remember from the party conference with the whole rigmarole with the environment and whether climate change was real and that line wasn't brought in. All those sorts of things have been obviously working against the Conservatives to the point that Aaron O'Toole, yes, he's not doing badly in some polls. He's doing a little worse in others. But when it all balances out right now, Justin Trudeau basically has the advantage because a lot of the opposition around him just have not been able to either A, take control of the narrative, or B, define themselves as a proper alternative to the Liberals to the point that a lot of Canadians, for whatever reason, just remain content that this, you know, this Liberal government that overspends and rules poorly is still in the driver's seat, at least as of right now. Wish we had more time. A lot more to talk about. So we'll, and you know, the election isn't tomorrow, so we will get to it. But that is Michael Tobe. Always appreciate you taking some time, especially on a Friday. Thanks for doing this, Michael. My pleasure, Scott. Have a nice weekend. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Liberal Party, the government this week introduced some new legislation to curb hate speech, particularly online. This is the idea that there is stuff that is said on social media, on websites, on things like that. Let's find a way that can curtail that, can prevent that, can stop that. I mean, it sounds delightful, except there are concerns and there are some problems. The number one of those, the top of the list of those is, well, there's a couple of them, but one, how do you define hate in speech? I mean, not not a sense, not a feeling, not a generalization. How do you define it? Because if you're going to have a law, surely you have to have a definition of how that law will be applied. That's one of them. And the other one is, who is going to be the arbiter or arbiters of this to determine what that law means? I want to bring in Joanna Barron. She's the executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Joanna, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Great to be with you, Scott. Uh, before we dive too far down into this particular legislation, I'm confused by one thing. Isn't hate speech already illegal in this country? Absolutely. We have provisions against hate speech as well as counseling suicide and inciting genocide in the criminal code, which are, of course, protected by criminal protections, such as the presumption of innocence, the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, none of which are present in this new legislation, which will be administered by bureaucrats. But perhaps we're getting beyond ourselves. Well, but my, my, I mean, look, when we talk about hockey, we're in the Stanley Cup playoffs right now, and refereeing has been a, and you'll understand where I'm going in a second, refereeing has been a huge topic of discussion. And one of the things people say is, we don't need new rules in hockey. 
We simply need to apply the rules as they are written and things will be fine. And I go to this. If we have laws that exist already in this country to stop or to charge people or, or prevent hate speech, why would we not simply apply those laws? And if they're not having enough teeth, apply them more properly? Yeah, it's a very good question. The other fundamental difference here is that it's a civil remedy. So actually private citizens um, can make a complaint to the Canadian Human Rights Commissioner and get a remedy, get a cash remedy up to $20,000 or in some cases $50,000. But this is obviously part of the Liberals' bigger blitz to make a big sort of symbolic statement. As you'll know, this was announced right as the House of Commons recessed for the summer. We all know that a fall election is mostly likely on the books. So you have to look at this kind of tactically. But I do think it's still important to look at what it revives, because this is not a new idea. Um, as you, you'll know, Section 13 of the Canada Human Rights Act, which this bill, this online harms bill, brings back, was repealed by private members bill in 2012. And the reason was, was that it led to many um, sort of vexatious claims. Most famously, McLean's magazine was taken to this tribunal over publishing uh, an excerpt from a best-selling book by Mark Stein about the threats of Islamophobia. And it was widely seen as just sort of a sideshow. Nobody knew what the rules were. Nobody knew what the burdens were. And it also seemed frankly, a bit much to say that harm was caused by a book that, although certainly controversial, couldn't be said as causing real harm in the sense of proximity to violence. Well, and that leads to, there's a couple things that come out of what you just said. I mean, and the obvious one, and I touched on this at the beginning, if you're going to have a, a legislation that comes in and says, we're going to get rid of online hate. Surely the definition of that is going to be laid out so specifically that every person, you and me and everyone listening who goes on to Twitter or goes on to a, a newspaper page and, and comments after or anything, surely it's laid out so clearly that we would know where the lines are. And yet, as I hear about this, it sounds like it's very gray. Very great. So this is the language. It draws on a 1990s decision from the Supreme Court of Canada. It says hate speech is expressions of detestation or vilification, which are likely to foment detestation or vilification. Yes, that's circular. It also says that it's stronger than dislike or disdain. It has to be more than discrediting. Um, but I still think there's a lot of gray area. And indeed, we've seen since 1990, first of all, there's a whole lot more speech. And this is purportedly regulating online speech. There's a lot more than it was in 1990. But things like publishing Muhammad cartoons, those came up before the Human Rights Commission. So if you think that Charlie Hebdo, which published the very controversial Muhammad cartoons, if you think that they should be allowed to operate, you should be against this legislation. Uh, okay, I, I want to go back because your your definition, just for a sec, can you read that definition again of what the law would say is hate speech? Yes, so it's, I, and you're not the only one that finds this a bit confusing. So it's detestation or vilification that is likely to foment, and notice the word likely. So likely is uh, in law generally a pretty low threshold. It's not um, certain to, not proven to, but likely to foment the same detestation or vilification among others. 
All right. I, I have every faith in the audience who listens to 900 CHML. I believe that they are intelligent people. And yet I believe that if you were to ask most people to say, what in the world does that mean? People's heads would spin trying to understand what that definition is. I don't understand. And I look, I, I looked up because I read it and I looked up the definitions. And here's the problem. One of the other problem I have detest it because if we're going to go with these fancy $20 words, we got to know what they mean. Vilification is abusively disparaging speech or writing. Detestation is intense dislike. Joanna, if you go onto Twitter, 50% of what is posted there would fall into those categories. That means almost everybody who's on Twitter could be charged with this. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing we didn't mention was that the new bill even goes further than Section 13, which it brings back. They also have a new procedure where you can apply for a peace bond. So if you think somebody is about to commit a hate speech violation against you, you can actually have um, an officer of the court prevent them. Um, I'm not sure how that's meant to work, but I think what you're pointing to is that laws need to be predictable and clear. And if they're not, they either lead to confusion um, or they lead to people simply disregarding the law. Because how are you supposed to know something that's inherently subjective? Probably if we asked 100 Canadians for an example of vilification, we would get 100 different answers. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah. If I, I could tell you and everyone listening could tell you, okay, if I said that break and enter is a, is a crime, and we all know that break and enter is a crime, every single person would understand what the confines are and what that means I cannot do. I, if it's not my house, I can't break into someone's house, I can't take stuff from them. We all, it's very, very clear. This, and especially with that word likely, because if, if I posted something that you said uh, that, that everyone looked at and went, oh my, that that's going to lead to someone going and attacking somebody, okay, you know what? We can be pretty clear. Likely, what is, all this does to me is leave this wide open for a million different interpretations. Yeah, I will just say the position of the Canadian Constitution Foundation has always been that if we're going to have any hate speech laws in Canada, it must be on a purely objective basis. And the only way it can be objective is if you can actually connect it to a course of action that, okay, somebody is actually advocating that you go out um, and commit a violent crime against a designated minority, for example. Otherwise, these are just ideas, um, and we need to be very clear about that. Otherwise, we just get into this hazy gray zone where everything is presumptively forbidden. Yeah, so you're, what you're talking about is you can't do something that anticipates something bad happening. There has to be a proof that something led to something. That's correct. And again, if we've got all this interpretation, now I don't believe for a second uh, that Stephen Guibault, who's the, the heritage minister, or Justin Trudeau, or anybody in the Liberal Party, any politician, I don't believe any of them, or frankly, nobody on the Supreme Court is going to be hearing these cases. So who is going to be doing the... Uh, you, you file a hate speech charge against me based on this new legislation. It goes where? Who does the interpreting and the, the deciding if I've in fact said something hateful? So it goes to the Canadian Human Rights Commission, which are essentially appointed bureaucrats who serve basically at the pleasure of the government. They're not necessarily trained jurists or lawyers, um, and they're, they're the ones that are going to have to interpret this likely to foment detestation statute. Um, and of course, there are, there are rights of appeal and standard of review, but then you're getting into like five five years of litigation over things like publishing uh, an excerpt from Mark Stein's book. 
um, or whatever the next complaint will be. And we do know that there are a lot of vexatious complaints that came up under the previous, uh, the previous Section 13 Act. So, and we expect that this time around, if it comes into law, which I very much doubt and very much hope that it doesn't, there will be a plethora of more because, again, more speech, more communication. And I'm thinking back, and, and I don't remember the number, but don't don't I recall from reading somewhere that the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal has almost a unanimous or a hundred percent conviction rate or finding guilty rate when they hear these things? That's right, and the hearings are held in secret. Nice. Uh, yeah. So I mean, look, it, this is there. There are so many parts about this that are already concerning, and then you move on to the next part, which, again, like. I want to stop for just one second because I think some people are listening saying, wait, you're against the idea of holding people accountable for hate speech. I am not against that. There is a law already, but let's move on. It says here by that definition that you gave as well, if I heard it correctly, that this only applies in the speech, the vilification and detestation towards certain groups. So to other groups, vilification and detestation would be just fine. That's right. It's only against, um, you know, designated minorities or people that have a designated ground of distinction. So sexual minorities, religious minorities, um, ethnic minorities, etc. I mean, we're, we're, we're diving down into something that, you know, is a whole philosophical and deep discussion right now. But does that mean that people who don't fit one of those criteria cannot be hated in Canada? That it certainly looks like that on the law. And I'm sure, you know, the Liberals' heart is in the right place. They would say, look, these are people that we need to be especially protective of in society. But we also have the Charter and we also have the presumption of equality under the law. And so that would seem to conflict with that. If we have the right of equal dignity, then they should be truly equal. Well, I mean, look, in in recent months, uh, go back to the George Floyd situation. And since then, I mean, you can find, you want to define detestation and vilification. You can find things that are way beyond those words about police officers online, for example. But I guess presumably you're permitted to have those views, even if it hates or leads to potentially people taking action against police officers, but not others. Again, I look at this and I think, Maybe they do have their heart in the right place, but it, it seems like such a, fl- a floppy law that just allows for certain things and not for others and nobody can possibly understand. Yeah, I think that's about an accurate summation. Okay, so does this mean then, in your interpretation, that is this just someone who goes on Twitter and says something grossly offensive about a minority group Uh, that could be in front of the Human Rights Tribunal? Or could this be you speaking on a radio show right now and say something that someone then decides that they think they interpreted, they heard what you said was offensive and hateful to them, and that you could be brought in front of the Human Rights Tribunal and have to fight your case? I I, I don't think, I think that they, they do clarify that just criticism or humiliation or something offensive is not going to cut it. I think where we truly get into sticky territory is things like things like Muhammad cartoons, things like criticism of religious figures that a court could say having this out in, you know, in a public forum, I think, is likely to incite hatred against this group. So, for example, um, to take a non-religious example, um, but it was frequently and 
in his defense, he predicted this is what would happen. Uh, Jordan Peterson was very frequently yes. accused of uh, encouraging hate against trans people for his comments about trans pronouns and his criticism of the obligation to, to use trans pronouns. It was, um, and I believe even U of T itself put out an official report saying that we are afraid that Dr. Peterson's remarks um, make the trans community at University of Toronto unsafe. So you see how there is a jump there to there's an actual issue of physical safety. Um, and yet the comment itself was a comment, was not connected to, you know, go and do something, God forbid, against these individuals. Um, but it's construed in that light. And that's where things get very hazy. And Jordan Peterson has said this was exactly what was going to happen. Well, and, and look, you bring up an interesting example. I talked about this last uh, yesterday, talked about this with someone. Um, there is a case right now, a very interesting story out of New Zealand where a trans athlete has made the Olympic weightlifting team and people, including women who are weightlifters, are taking issue and complaining and saying this is wrong and we don't believe this is right. And I don't know that I've heard anything that in my mind would rise to the level of anything hateful, but certainly it's been critical. And because it's about a hot button issue, I, I look at that again and I think if someone is commenting on this, I wonder if that's one of those things that suddenly ends up in front of this tribunal, if there was a local case. Yeah, I mean, this is now we're getting into a broader issue in the culture, right? That we have become very messy about separating speech from acts. And there is certainly a segment of the population, which perhaps the liberals are pandering to with this bill and its notable timing, that really do think that speech can be violent. Um, and I, I think this is something that we have to be very clear about. That violence is violence. Speech can rise to a level where it incites violence, and nobody questions that that should be a crime. Um, but talking about controversial ideas is not violence. We should be it's honest essential. about that. Yeah. It's essential. I mean, I, look, how many, how many scientists would have to be shut down because their work that they're doing, which they don't know the answer to necessarily, could end up with a result that somebody might say is offensive or something. And I mean, how many, again, commentators or whatever, I mean, it just, this seems like it's just got the inevitable end position that free expression, free speech is going to be stifled out of fear of what might happen to you. Yeah, exactly. And free speech, we, we really think is the fundamental value in our society because it's the value by which we arrive at all of our other values. If we need to start with the presumption of totally open discourse, totally open conversation, and only then can we say these are our values. We believe in equal dignity. We, we believe in freedom of religion, freedom um, freedom of assembly. But if you don't have the open context in the, it, to begin with, how do you arrive at those fundamental rights and freedoms? You know, it was an interesting thing. Earlier this week, there was a, uh, uh, it's not related directly, but you'll get, uh, again, you'll understand, there, there was a Supreme Court ruling in the States, uh, obviously not Canadian, but in the States, and it was about a cheerleader who had been profane in her criticism of her principal and her school. Uh, and the question was, can schools control or crack down on speech? Well, one of the justices wrote this, it's sometimes necessary to protect superfluous in order to preserve the necessary. And I, and I thought, I read that line about 25 times this week, and I thought, you know, how many times, if we have this law in place, are we going to have something that you go, ah, you know, yeah, that was harsh, or that was critical, or that was, mm, that was, you know, that was tough. 
but doesn't rise to the level that would be a hate crime. And yet it will lead to something in the tribunal. And again, it comes to the idea of how far do we want to go where we start weeding out the superfluous, which ends up leading to weeding out a whole lot of other things. Well, let's just put it this way. It's never Hallmark cards that are the venue where free speech laws are tested, right? <laughs> it's always something where you think, okay, I don't exactly like that. The guy seems like a jerk. I know in the Supreme Court, uh, the SCOTUS case, it was, I think, a teenager who said, you know, cheerleading sucks, but with, yeah. with more profane language yes. or things like that. Um, but it's going to be something that looks like to most people in society, speech that would not, quote unquote, attract the highest levels of protection Well. That is exactly where our, our values become tested. It is. Uh, it's a really interesting one. It's a really uh, it's a really concerning one. If you value free expression, and again, this isn't arguing for hate speech. No one is arguing for hate speech. But I think we're a lot of us arguing for free expression and don't want those freedoms whittled and chiseled away. Uh, this is a tricky one. Uh, Joanna Barron, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Sincerely appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. Great to be with you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring in our good friend, Rick Zamperin. You know Rick. He's on here on this station all the time because he works for 900 CHML. He's the sports director. He's, he has, I mean, he's got so many titles, I can't remember. He's got a business card that actually folds out because he's got so many titles on it here. And one of the new things that he's adding to his business card is weeping leaf fan because the Montreal Canadians are now in the Stanley Cup finals. Rick, um, uh, if you're a leaf fan and I know you are, and I know a lot of people listening are, I think most people would rather have had hardcore dental surgery with a road drill than to watch the Montreal Canadians get into the finals yesterday. Yes. I have no tears to shed any longer because they were long shed uh, back in round one. <laughs> you know, I had a discussion with a friend the other day about Leafs fans or, or any 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 fan of a Canadian team where their team has been knocked out of the playoffs or doesn't qualify for the playoffs. They should um, automatically cheer for the last remaining Canadian team to win the Stanley Cup. False. And both he, both he and I agree that that should not be the case. No. Nope. Because that, that would be akin to a New York Yankees fan cheering for the Boston Red Sox if the Red Sox you know, we're the we're going up against you know who you know Team X in the World Series. Uh, it just should not and will not happen. Am I happy for the Habs? Fantastic. They've had a a fairy tale run, and it might end up with a Stanley Cup championship, and I'm happy for them. But I just cannot bring myself to cheer for them to win the cup. Any proper um, real fan of a team especially if you are not a fan of the Montreal Canadiens, could not in good conscience cheer for the Montreal Canadiens now. Just the same way, and you know, this is, it, it, it turned about as fair play. If the Toronto Maple Leafs were in the Stanley Cup Finals, you would be not finding loads of Montreal Canadiens fans suddenly going, oh, go Leafs, go. There is a deep generational hatred and i use that word not in the term of hate like real hate but i mean sporting hate there is a deep generational hatred between those teams that for most people it would preclude you from having warm cuddly feelings for the other side <laughs> yeah there's an unwritten rule that you know you're just not going to cheer for the other team just because they're the last canadian team standing 
fantastic team. Love a lot of the players on the team. But as a fan of the Maple Leafs, can't do it. It'd be no different if it was Edmonton in the final. You're not going to find Flames fans suddenly cheering for the Oilers. No, and, and I'll say this. I was talking, I think I was talking to Scott Thompson the other day about this. I'll throw this out to you. For some reason, if you're a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, the idea of Vancouver or Montreal or Ottawa getting into the finals would be just sphincter clenching. Like you just, it's it's a horrible thought. And vice versa, for Vancouver to see Toronto or Montreal or Ottawa or any of those, mix up any of those. Somehow, and I'm not sure why, it's the Prairie team's seem almost like this benign entity other than with themselves. I mean, Calgary hates Edmonton and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. But if a Toronto Maple Leafs, if Edmonton had got into the finals, I don't think a lot of Leaf fans would have been grumbling. They may not have been excited about it, but I don't think they would have cared. They would have gone, oh, good for Connor McDavid. They're like this, they're like a, the three teams that are inoffensive uncles that only show up once a year and you don't really have a strong feeling either way about them. I, I would agree with that, although I used to live in Alberta and used to work in Alberta, and the, the feeling isn't mutual. I don't think they would suddenly jump on the Leafs bandwagon. If you're a hardcore Flames or Oilers fan or a Jets fan, you know, we might get some of them, but I think overall the vast majority would say, no, I don't want the Leafs to win. I don't want any other Canadian. I want, I want my team to be the next Canadian champion. You know what I mean? So, uh, oh yeah, I didn't say jump on the bandwagon. I right. said not be entirely bent out of shape. I mean, look, yeah. when the Vancouver Canucks were in the final in 2011, I remember hearing all this stuff. Oh, we should all be cheering. They're the last Canadian team. There was nobody east of the border of Vancouver that wanted Vancouver to win <laughs> that cup. Yeah. Nobody did. And, and, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's a good thing though, Rick. And this is what I, what I keep having a hard time with people not understanding um, rivalries and sporting emotions. It's a good thing. It's a positive part of sports. Hating the other team is not the same as wanting their city to burn to the ground. It's a rivalry and it should mean something. And it's a positive thing for sports. If you care, I don't think Toronto, I don't think Hamilton Tiger cat fans suddenly are rooting for the Toronto Argonauts in the great cup just because, well, they're the last Eastern team standing. You're supposed to hate them. Exactly. Yeah. And you know what, when, when Vancouver, which was the last team prior to this year, Montreal making the final, last team to make the final uh, for Canadian team. And in, in, I think it was 2011, you know, they were playing Boston and I was like, yeah, I, I really don't care who wins. I mean, if Vancouver wins, great. If Boston wins, which turned out to be the case, you know, uh, great. I, I wasn't really interested to see, you know, either one uh, claim that prize, but when it comes to your bitter arch rivals, you're hoping for the worst. <laughs> it's uh, no time, question. Which, which makes let me, this Montreal run unbelievable. Well, let me ask you about this Montreal run because there's one thing that has been brought up a lot, and, and I think it's a legitimate thing. I'm not saying it's the reason, but it's a legitimate thing. There seemed to be some some magic pixie dust, not necessarily on the Canadians, although maybe, but all against their opponents. The Leafs, like three minutes into their first game, whatever it was, lose John Tavares and then later lose Jake Muzzin. Uh, the Jets lose their number one center, Mike, Mark Scheifele, in the first game. Uh, the Golden Knights lose their first line ch- center, Chandler Stevenson, out for most of the series. And now if Tampa Bay advances, and many people think they're going to into the finals, uh, Nikita Kucherov, maybe their best player, looks like he's injured, and even if he can play, is not going to be at full speed. That's a That's a pleasant lineup of missing players for any opponent. It's uh, it's rather uncanny when you consider that you know Tavares goes down with a you know, freak injury, 
you know, Shifley gets suspended. Stevenson gets hurt. Kucherov gets cross-checked the other night. And, you know, the, the NHL's playoff scoring leader uh, may not play tonight in Game 7. And who knows, if, if, he does, if he doesn't play tonight, he might miss, you know, uh, some Stanley Cup games if Tampa Bay is victorious tonight. Um, but there's, you know, other things as well that have kind of gone – Montreal's way and this is not you know making excuses or saying you know they've they've had uh, you know the uh, the luck of the Irish uh, but they have taken advantage of those opportunities you know two of their uh, uh, you know, young up-and-coming stars in Yasperi Kutkemiemi and uh, Cole Caulfield are having fantastic playoff performances and they weren't even in the lineup in the first two games their interim head coach Dominic Ducharme has tested positive for COVID-19, hasn't been behind the bench for the last couple of outings. Uh, you know, this was a team that had a COVID-19 outbreak in March. Uh, they were scuffling at the start of the season. They fired their coach in February. They barely made the playoffs. They were the last team to qualify for the playoffs. And lo and behold, they're in the Stanley Cup final. It has been just an unbelievable uh, Cinderella-type story. And I'm sure... You left out the biggest one, one, though. Which Rick, sorry, you left out the biggest one. And that's that Carey Price recovered from his concussion just in time for the playoffs. And because if Carey Price is not playing for the Montreal Canadiens, they lost that first series to the Leafs in three games. I mean, it was such a blowout after those three games that they don't even show up for game four. They just say, come on, take it. It's fine. We're, 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 we've got early tea times. I mean, that's how lopsided people may not remember. Carey Price was absolutely the reason why they beat the Leafs. I mean, the Leafs didn't do much to help themselves, but Carey Price was magnificent in those in those games. He's not there. They're not playing today. There is zero chance they're playing today. Without a doubt. Uh, he was by far and away the best player on the ice in that entire series. Uh, and, you know, he's, he had a great series against Winnipeg and another good one against Vegas, but that series against the Leafs. Uh, you know, Toronto was one goal away from advancing to round two, Game five, overtime, you know, Leafs score, and we're not talking about the Habs right now. We're, we're potentially talking about a Maple Leafs Stanley Cup appearance uh, or a deeper playoff run at least. But Carey Price was absolutely sensational. And, you know, since that game five win, they won in game six, they won in game seven, they held the lead for the entire series after that. And I think they really, you know, found themselves in terms of, you know, this is the style of play that, we play best at let's continue it um but in saying that there have been multiple instances in the leaf series not necessarily in the jet series but certainly uh, in uh, the series against las vegas as well including the overtime winner last night is that one team the opposition whether it's toronto or vegas uh seemed to be or not seemed to be were dominating the portion of play whether it was you know the game five overtime that toronto almost won nearly didn't game six as well Las Vegas was playing exceptional in the overtime period last night. And the first opportunity that Montreal gets yep. to shoot Opportunistic. on goal, yeah, they, they score. It's for whatever reason, they have, uh, they have that magic touch. And it's amazing to see, even though we're not cheering for that, it's still amazing to see. I'll say this, and, and they have ca- captured that pixie dust and they are riding that wave and all the rest of the stuff. But because of that, like there have been not that many games the Canadians have been the better team. They have been the opportunistic team. They've had the way better goaltending and good defense. I don't think the Montreal Canadiens make the playoffs next year. Could I don't be. think they're that I good mean, a team. Yeah, they, they, they finished 18th this year. They weren't very good. They had to fire the coach. I don't think they make the playoffs next year, but I think they could win the cup this year. 
Yeah, I, I think that's an accurate statement. You know, they played, what, 56 games this season. If it was a regular 82-game schedule, you know, depending on the health of Carey Price uh, and when he was coming back, um, they may not have made the playoffs this year. And and they have the same guys who are on the ice right now. I mean, that's they don't play an exciting brand of hockey. It is very well-structured. It is, yes, opportunistic. They have some really good players and some really good young players as well. They have some grizzled veterans. Um, they have a lot of character on their team, and they don't get frazzled. Uh, they don't get blown out. They don't blow out other teams. It's just a very quiet, concise, and precise hockey team right now, and a very confident hockey team right now. And that's and that's why this isn't supposed to be like something like a hot take or something. The point is that style of play is really difficult to play for the extent of a regular season. Yeah, It's really hard to maintain that, to have these scorching hot goaltending, to have the bounces go your way in the overtimes, to be able to play almost rope-a-dope sometimes, as you say, with the other teams, and then still have it work out for you. Um, th- they were a team that would not have made the playoffs, as you say, in a regular season this year. Uh, had things been going the normal way, I just I look and I go, it's a fantastic run they're on. But I, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's in its own little world. It's in its own little bubble of time and space. Cause I just, I don't think they're a team that is really nearly as good as they're playing right now, but they sure are playing well. Uh, let me ask you this um, about that. we got a few more minutes here on a different note, the Montreal Canadians win. Their fans are excited. Montreal, the city is excited. They win. I got to reiterate that they won. It was a good thing. Why do they riot? <laughs> I haven't got a clue in the world, you know, and, and not to say that everyone in that crowd was riding because that's no, of course they, not. You know, they, they made a handful of arrests, which, you know, rightfully so. Um, I, I just don't understand that. And I think it is certain individuals who are the bad apples of the bunch see an opportunity to do harm or damage or, or whatever the case is. And they, they take it upon themselves to jump upon that opportunity and i don't understand the mentality because i'm not i don't live in that in that world um it should be a joyous celebratory occasion and and you know for the most part it was but when you see you know police cars torched and overturned uh and you know graffiti and all that kind of stuff it just leaves a sour taste in your mouth and you know we've seen it with other teams it doesn't just happen in montreal it happens in other sports as well it's it it boggles the mind and i just don't understand why some people do that I mean, I, look, I, I, I'm not endorsing it in any stretch of the imagination, but when Vancouver was in the finals in 2011 and they lost and people were then upset and there was anger and there was yeah. hard feelings, I don't endorse it, but I can kind of maybe wrap my head around possibly understanding at least the sentiment behind why people were acting out. But for a celebration, I mean, who's ever had a, a birthday party or a graduation party and then burn their backyard down <laughs> just because, Hey, we're so excited. Let's burn down the, the pergola in our backyard. Like it makes no sense. Yeah. So I, again, I don't, uh, I don't quite understand. All right. Um, Dave Haxtell, who was a assistant coach with the Maple Leafs, just left mm-hmm. to become head coach of the Seattle Kraken, the expansion team. One of the weirdest choices for a head coach. Um, I mean, he may be a great head coach, but if you're trying to build a, brand and a, and a whatever. I mean, Dave Haxtell, who's, I mean, people in Seattle, have they even heard of the guy? Anyway, point is there's now an opening on the Maple Leafs bench, whether it's a good move hockey wise, or just a good move for PR for a team that boy, the, the 
temperature around the Leafs is now sitting at around molten right now because of what's <laughs> happening, not just with them, but with the Canadians. Yeah. Lots of talk about bringing in Bruce Boudreaux as an assistant coach. Mm-hmm. What do you think about bringing in Bruce Boudreaux, a guy who's been a head coach forever? What about bringing him, bringing in him as an assistant? Well, I know the fan base, there's been a lot of uh, you know tweets and social media messages to bring Bruce back home. He is uh, adamant at being a Leafs fan. He has made no qualms about that. You know, former player on the Maple Leafs. Uh, you know, he, here's a guy who, as you mentioned, has been a head coach for a long time. He's currently not employed in the National Hockey League with uh, any team in a head coaching capacity. Has never been an assistant, but... You know, he still knows the game. Uh, he still knows what makes players tick, and he still knows how to get the most out of, you know, people in a dressing room. So I don't think it would be a bad hire at all. I'd like to see the alternatives. But when you look at the name Bruce Boudreaux, who's won you know, hundreds of hockey games as a head coach, why could he not be an assistant? Um, I think the Leafs should at least look into this matter, interview him, see where he is and whether he fits under Sheldon Keefe. And if so, I think it might be a good match the players in the dressing room might learn some new words <laughs> or at least, at least one word and how to use it in anyone who didn't see when Bruce Boudreaux was head coach of the Washington Capitals and they had that HBO series before the yeah. outdoor game, there was a very famous scene where he went into the dressing room and he used the F word as a noun, a verb, an adjective, an adverb, a participle, a conjunction, an article, <laughs> and any other preposition, any other grammatical, it was the most, it, it, how do you describe it, Rick? It was it was a a, a, a festival of f bombs. It was awe inspiring. <laughs> Very creative on his part, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, that they, the players would learn something. I don't know what they would learn, but um, the, the 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 paint in the Maple Leafs walls may need to be reinforced. Would be the yeah. uh, hey, if he comes in and fixes their power play, then uh, yeah, he can say whatever he wants. Well, then the fans won't be using that word nearly as much, and so it just balances out. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Rick Zamprin from 900 CHML. Thanks for taking a few minutes from your vacation. Rick is on vacation. So really appreciate you taking some time out to join us. Thanks for doing this. You got it. Have a good one. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.